0: Uh, For the past few weeks, we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer. We first saw that the privilege of using that kind of family language to call God the King, Abba, Father, is a privilege that Jesus' death, His shed blood on the cross, has won for us, has secured for us. This means that uh, this kind of prayer language is really only sensible if you're a follower of Jesus Christ considered His child, calling Him Father, if you believe that His life was lived in your place, and if you believe that His death was laid down on your behalf. We also see that although we're called to intimacy with God Himself, we're to hallow His name. We're to treat it as holy. He's different. He is set apart from every other, and because He's the true King ruling over all creation, His perfect will working itself out in our lives is what brings about our greatest good. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those first three petitions align our hearts with God's heart. They point us heavenward to find the source of our hope. But as we turn the corner to the second half of the prayer, we saw last week that we're also invited to express our desires. God invites us to ask for daily bread, for the necessities of life to to survive and to thrive. And we saw that we're ultimately satisfied, we're meant to be satisfied through the bread of life Himself, Jesus. Um, in the last half of the prayer, there's that one petition for the body, we might say. But now we'll see today and next Sunday, there are two petitions for the soul. And the first of those is... Uh, at the root of our relationship with God, but God also expects it to be um, reflective of our relationships with one another. There's a vertical source, but there are horizontal implications. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Listen carefully. These are God's words. "'This, then, is how you should pray. "'Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. "'Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.'" Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, show us more and more clearly all of the ways in which we are to relate to you. You are Father, you are King, you are Savior, but you're also the one to whom we are in debt. Reveal that clearly to us, Lord, and show us the only solution. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we will focus on the reality of debt. The Uh, national debt in our country is just about to hit $20 trillion. I don't know that any of us can really comprehend that mind-boggling number, but this additional number puts it into perspective. Uh, There's $61,000 of debt for every person living in the U.S., adult and child, $61,000. We can pay it off if we all just come up with that amount. Bloomberg uh, reports that student loan debt here in the U.S. is actually $200 billion more than the total mortgage debt here in the U.S. What we owe to colleges is more than what we owe to banks for our homes, which is $1.1 trillion, another number with zeros we can't even comprehend. We owe someone... Other governments with the national debt, our own government with loans, and and especially student loans, or a credit card company or a bank, we owe someone a whole lot of money. Here in verse 12, Jesus describes sin against the Father using that term, debt. We have to pay for all of our rebellion against God, all of our law-breaking. We are indebted to Him. We've done, in other words what we should not have done, sins of commission. We've committed them. But debt also comes from the sin of omission, uh, quote, things we've left undone which we ought to have done, as an old prayer of confession puts it. Uh, and Sometimes we pray that language in our corporate prayer of confession during renewal. We owe God as King absolute obedience, We go, oh God, as Father, absolute loyalty and love. He deserves it all, but none of us has loved him as we ought to, as he deserves to be loved. And so Jesus tells us in this prayer to pray for forgiveness of debt. The idea here isn't to be saved over and over again, as if you need to be washed clean of your sin um, uh, yet again every day. The idea here is so that this father-child relationship can be restored to the fullness it was intended to taste. This is a concept, forgiveness of debts, that's becoming more and more strange in our culture today. When I talked about spiritual things with a good friend of mine a while back, uh, when I pointed to the need Uh, for salvation in his life through faith in Jesus Christ, his shut down answer was this. He listened well. He said, I just don't see myself as a sinner. I'm a good person. I just don't see that I need this kind of rescuing from myself. In other words, I don't think I owe God anything. Some of that flows out of uh, the relativism that affects all, all of our thinking, um, not just in this country, but in so many parts of the world. It's become the default philosophy, relativism. What's right for you isn't right for me. Um, don't tell me how to live my life. Who, who are you to define good and what's right and tell me not to do what's, what you believe is wrong? Um, if it feels good, do it, as long as it doesn't harm other people. Relativism encapsulates so many of those kinds of thoughts, and it's pervading every part of our world today. So, if self defines what is good and right, then for that person, there isn't anything for God to forgive. The, uh, according to the world, the only remaining sin is the worst sin which is intolerance, intolerance. The other side of the same coin is that most Americans uh, reject the idea of divine justice, that there's a holy God sitting on His throne judging sinners, insisting that the debt of sin be repaid. That's a, um, not, not just a foreign concept, that's an offensive concept to most uh, Americans today. But turn to the news and listen to people um, reacting to some horrific crime, some child molester, some serial killer, some deadly terrorist act against innocence. And people want justice now. They're demanding it. They're, they're asking for blood, in a sense. People want forgiveness of their debt, if they even think in those terms, but can't tolerate the idea of an evil, evil person's debt being forgiven. No one wants a God who overlooks evil in our world who puts aside justice. Everyone simply wants a God who overlooks their evil and doesn't bring justice. This is where the biblical and secular worldviews constantly collide. They're at odds, entirely opposite. The Bible, uh, from beginning to end, though, describes the universal sinfulness of humanity, our constant from the very beginning rebellion against the rightful king. Uh, The Bible highlights this, the piling up of a debt more impossible to pay off than $20 trillion. Here's uh, a verse from Psalm 14, um, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. At the very end of the Bible, towards the end, First John chapter 1, the apostle says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, If we say there's no debt that we need to repay God, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. The debt of sin is real, but there is one and only one solution. Secondly, uh, the only solution to debt. If Jesus is telling us to pray for forgiveness, we need to take the time to understand what forgiveness from God's perspective really means it is not a feeling. It's not hearing, I'm sorry, and simply responding with, it's okay, no big deal. It's not forgiveness. Here's what God says when He offers forgiveness. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 25, He says, I will not remember your sins. That's what He tells His people. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, he says of his people, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not um, merely a thought. Forgiveness, biblically speaking, is a promise by God to no longer hold against you the sin you've committed. God doesn't forget things. He chooses not to remember He puts it aside. I will no longer hold against you. I promise the sin that you've committed against me. That is divine forgiveness. That that is the definition of forgiveness because He is the one to whom we are in debt and God is the one who makes these promises. That should give us a spiritual brain cramp in a sense because how can a sinful creature wronging a holy and perfect creator, be forgiven. Um, a just God cannot say to rebellious sinners, ah, don't worry about it. It's all good. It's not forgiveness. That, that, that's, that's a um, childish, simplistic caricature of forgiveness. It's nothing near what God has done. It's nothing near the promise God has made. Forgiving a debt doesn't just make it go poof. Forgiving a debt means someone else pays. And so if the federal government is forgiving student loans, it doesn't just go poof. The taxpayers have to fit the bill. Somebody has to pay back the the lender. Um, If your sin is forgiven, the consequences of your sin, the debt you've incurred against God doesn't just go poof someone has to pay. Who is that someone? The Apostle Paul points us to him in Colossians chapter 2 verses uh, 13 and following. When you were dead in your sins, this is worse than just owing something, right? Death. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And it wasn't just nail into wood. It was nail through flesh and bone into wood. Jesus paid the price. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been forgiven, if you stand free of that slavery to something that you could never repay, that debt didn't just go poof. Forgiveness means someone else paid, and He's Jesus. The debt of sin is real. The only solution to debt is the substitute life of Christ given in your place. Psalm 103 verse 10, "'He, God, does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities.'" For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him as far as the east is from the west. So far has He removed our transgressions from us. If you are a follower of Jesus, God the Father has removed your transgressions from you, and He has put it on His Son. And He has brought the consequences of justice and holiness upon His Son, that you might go free, that's the only solution to debt. That's how God accomplished the freeing of His people from slavery to sin. Last thought, this is uh, the bulk of what I want to share this morning, the calling of debt-forgiven people. How does this work itself out in relationships? What are the implications? On June 17, 2015, seems like farther back in the past, Dylan Roof walked into a Bible study in a room in Emmanuel African and Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He mercilessly executed nine parishioners as they were praying in the midst of a Bible study. Roof had deliberately selected Emmanuel Church as his target because it was an historic church in one of the South's oldest black churches, a perfect target of his radical racist agenda. But maybe more shocking to the world than a crazed Lone Ranger going off, sadly, not so shocking today, maybe more shocking to the world than his actions were the messages shared by three survivors and the victim's families who lined up to vocalize with tears and some with great difficulty forgiveness straight to his face during the bond hearing first, and then many months later at the end of the trial, even after they had heard his racist rants, even after they saw him Showing utterly no remorse for his actions. He said he had to do it and he would do it over again. They still exhibited forgiveness. It was utterly countercultural and literally supernatural, above nature, above how nature instinct, one's gut would urge you to act and to speak right? Their, their guts had to hate this man. Their guts had to want to reach over the, the separation in the courtroom and strangle him and make him pay for this horrific crime, but supernaturally, above their nature, they forgave. And I can't back this up with any specific quotes. I don't have any inside knowledge, but I have to think that that Decision that willingness to forgive, that strength that they displayed was only possible because these men and women had received gospel mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. They knew they had been forgiven an unpayable debt through faith in Jesus. These sinners saved by grace knew that they had wronged the King of the universe, and yet He had forgiven them, and so how could they not Struggle with all his strength, scripture puts it, to move towards forgiveness of this man who had terrorized them and their families. It's the only explanation I can come up with. A few months before the shooting, the Atlantic Magazine had run an article that mentioned a psychologist um, whose own mother had been murdered. And in the months uh, following that tragedy in his life, he came up with a technique for dealing with his anger. Uh, I put it up for you. First, you recall the incident, he wrote, including all the hurt. Empathize with the person who wronged you. Then you give them the altruistic gift of forgiveness, maybe by recalling how good it felt to be forgiven by someone you yourself have wronged. Next, commit yourself to forgive publicly by telling a friend or the person you're forgiving. Finally, hold on to forgiveness. Even when feelings of anger surface, remind yourself that you've already forgiven. I don't know about you, but if I read that article, if it was handed to me by some well-intentioned person, I think I'd crumple it up and throw it in the trash. I think I'd look for a paper shredder or or a match to light it on fire. I don't mean any disrespect to the psychologist. Um, Certainly nothing bad about these thoughts they seem productive, they're they're well-intentioned, but forgiveness is not a mind trick. Forgiveness is not a technique to make yourself feel better. It's not this spiritual mumbo-jumbo that manipulates feelings and makes something horrific, tries to at least into something palatable, into something decent. Forgiveness biblically defined because that's the ultimate forgiveness of debt. It's the ultimate um, setting aside of consequence. Forgiveness is a promise to no longer hold something against someone who has wronged you. These victims and family members lived out Matthew chapter 6 verse 12, both parts of it, which is the only line of the Lord's Prayer, by the way, that merits added commentary, which we find in verses 15 and, uh, 14 and 15. These people lived out verse 12, Give, uh, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We, we've taken from you, God, vertically, and we've, we've tried with all of your might in us, because we can't do this, to share it horizontally. Verses 14 and 15 are the added commentary. The only piece, the only line of this prayer that gets two verses to. Um, add, to explain, to um, complement it. And in verses 14 and 15, let me read it again, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We might wish that's not in the Bible, because it'd be easier to kind of rationalize away, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, it's not the same God, you know, um, what they did to me is nothing What. We we could rationalize it away, but verses fourteen and fifteen kind of trap us and don't give us that option. Jesus is not saying here that if I'm sorry, Jesus is um, not saying that you earn God's forgiveness by forgiving other people. It's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying that if you're not willing to forgive other people who have sinned against you you don't really, that's a sign that you don't really understand what it means to be forgiven by God. If it's not overflowing this way, maybe you're not being filled with it this way. If you, in other words, if you insist on absolute justice to come upon someone who has hurt you, who has wronged you, if you absolutely insist that their debt against you be held against them until they repay it, not monetarily, not with money, but with some attitude, with some humility, with some um, you know, action that makes up for it, whatever it is in your mind that you're insisting that their debt be held against them, if you're doing that while you freely and gratefully accept God's decision to forgive your debt, against Him, if you freely and gratefully receive God's abundant mercy, which cost Him the life of His Son, then by not forgiving other people, you're cutting off the branch you're sitting on. By not forgiving other people, you're sawing off the rope that has rescued you from certain death. The poet George Herbert wrote this, "'He that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass.'" if he would ever reach heaven, for everyone has need to be forgiven. That's what Jesus is getting at. This is an accurate spiritual barometer, he's saying. Can you forgive others who have wronged you? Do you hold on to grudges, harbor resentment? Are you always looking for things to criticize in other people? ways they failed, ways they should have done better? Do you hold that against them? Do you take something beautiful and look for something ugly? Or do you extend grace because you yourself have received much grace? Do you extend mercy because you realize deeply how much you have benefited from mercy? This is the only petition in the Lord's Prayer That refers to other people. What we pray for has relational implications. Forgive us as we forgive others. And verse 12 shows us the the appropriate priority here, the order. First, you need to ask for forgiveness, which puts you in a position of need and vulnerability, of admitting that you have incurred debt that needs to be repaid somehow, even if you can't yourself. It puts you in a position of asking for mercy. No one likes to be in that position, right? It's vulnerable, it's weak, it's helpless, and that sets right your perspective on who you are and who God is. It reminds you that God doesn't owe you anything except His justice, except appropriate response, consequences for your sin against Him, and then that realization makes it possible. It prepares you. It strengthens you to possibly extend that same forgiveness to other people who have wronged you. A question I want you to consider. It might seem a little bit off topic, but but um, uh, let me, I'll explain. Can you receive grace well? And, and maybe in more concrete terms, I'll give you this example. Is it OK for a friend at Christmas time to surprise you with a an incredibly generous or an incredibly thoughtful gift when you weren't planning on giving them anything <laughs> If that's your top three worst Christmas nightmare, if you have um, had that happen and you ran out to your car and got on your phone and ordered something from Amazon with next day delivery and free gift wrapping so that you could pretend that you had just forgotten it at home and you're going to bring it by the next day, that may be a set of signs that the reason it's so scary is that you have a hard time being in debt to anyone, feeling like you owe anyone anything. In that position, that, that, some, some of you revel in that, I don't owe anybody anything. I'm good. I'm clear. Nobody's going to come looking for me for anything. I, I have paid all my debts. And I'm not, again, talking about money, alone at least. Some of you revel in that. I don't owe nobody nothing. But that attitude is rooted in sinful pride. That attitude is rooted in a sense of self. I'm independent. I'm self-reliant. I'm not at anyone else's mercy. No one can call me up and and call in my debt. It reflects a desire to stay in control of how you relate to other people, not just this way, but in turn this way as well. Because you prefer to be a lender rather than a debtor, a borrower. You prefer to be a giver instead of a receiver, perhaps because you feel like it puts other people in your debt. But trusting in Christ, this is at the heart of the gospel, trusting in Christ centrally involves receiving grace with no ability to repay the immense debt of our sin. You can't escape that central truth at the heart of the gospel, And the gospel points us to Christ's sufficient total payment in our place on the cross, which can only be received as an unconditional gift with nothing to offer in return. Last comment about what we're talking about here, the calling of debt-forgiven people. In Luke chapter 7 Jesus is having dinner with some Pharisees. These are the professionals at Righteous Living. They took it seriously. They they looked down on other people. They were always looking to trap Jesus. And during this dinner, they can't stand watching a notoriously sinful woman who is anointing Jesus' feet and wiping His feet with her hair. Jesus says to the hosts, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Here's what we need to learn, what we need to remind ourselves of over and over and over, especially in those seeming dead ends of relationship where you're at odds with somebody. The only way you gain the power To forgive the small debts of other people's sin against you is to realize how loved you are in Christ, is to grow in your understanding of how great is the debt of your sin against God Himself. Listen to the words of this modern hymn I came across this week called Forgive Our Sins As We Forgive. How can your pardon reach and bless the unforgiving heart that broods on wrongs and will not let old bitterness depart. In blazing light Your cross reveals the truth we dimly knew, how small the debts men owe to us, how great our debt to You. Let's pray. Lord God, show us the pettiness of our thoughts about slights against us, words that wounded, even if they drew blood, attitudes that we dislike, things that people should be doing when they're not doing. All of these things, Lord, show us the pettiness of it. Show us how small these debts are or, or inconsequential they are, and show us how great is our debt to You. And then show us, Lord, in our near despair, show us... How perfect was your solution to wiping that debt away? It didn't go poof. It was all poured out upon Jesus the Son. It was all suffered for, died for, experienced hell for, that we might go free. And so we praise you. We praise you. And we pray, uh, we hope, with deeper and richer meaning, week by week, we pray now using the words that Jesus taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.